Given the heat this morning, you might want to put some distance between yourself and the person next to you just for the next probably 45 minutes. Good to see you guys. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And uh, it is good to see you at our first ever 1115 service. Uh, You guys decided not to brave the 9 a.m. this morning. Uh, You guys decided to sleep in a little bit. I think our our 1115 has got a few people that came at 10 too. Uh, We love you guys as well. Thanks for sticking around and and bearing with us and coming back at 1115. Let me say this as we get started. I don't think I did it to the crowd this morning. Uh, Next week, we're going back to 10 o'clock in the morning. All right, so next week, church service is at 10. All right, those of you who came at 10 today, you were correct. So we will see you back again at 10 next week. Um, It is good to see you, all jokes aside, good to see you guys uh, this morning, this Easter Sunday morning, um, a time when I I hope that you can be really honestly as astonished and aware as I am, but a, a day when our culture gives us really the recognition and the ability to celebrate and remember the greatest news ever delivered to mankind. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but we actually get a day on our calendar to remember and celebrate the greatest news ever delivered to mankind. And that's exactly what I want to do this morning. I want to talk about that good news. I want to unpack that good news. And by God's grace, I want to deliver that good news. And so if you're with us this morning, what we like to do during this period of our time, really it's the bulk of our time together, we like to read the Bible, we like to take some time to explain what we read, we tend to go verse by verse through a section of the scriptures, seeking to explain what it says, figure out the implications that it makes on our life, and then try to make accurate application of the scriptures, scriptures to our life. So that's what we're going to do. And so I won't waste any more time this beautiful resurrection morning, um, I will pray, And then we will begin to do that. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some Bibles on trays behind the chair sections. Please grab one. Uh, They are free. We want you to have that. That's our gift to you if you don't have one. Um, If you're using one of those Bibles, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is on page 624. So as you begin to find that, I will pray, and then we'll just jump right into it. Sound good? Well, it sounds good to five of you. All right, let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we thank you for your sinless life and your death on the cross in our place for our sins. And today, this Easter day, for your triumphant resurrection. We thank you that through the cross, and most importantly, the empty tomb, our lives have been forever transformed, that everything is different. Our hope is not empty. Our hope is not in vain. Because today, Jesus, you are alive. Thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit to transform our hearts, to renew our minds, to refresh our hope, and to give us new life. And as we read your word this morning, I pray and I ask that you would allow us to understand who you are and what you have done. And God, I ask that as we do this, you make your son Jesus first in our hearts, first in our minds, for your glory and our joy. And it's in Jesus' good name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, written by the Apostle Paul, verse 1, he says this. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which, he's talking about this gospel, you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
And so I'm just going to be honest up front. I'll put my cards out on the table for all of you who are new here with us. My intention in our time together is nothing different than what the Apostle Paul's intention was right here. I simply want to deliver to you for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, the good news. And that's what the word gospel means. That's really what it means. Paul's intention was to remind the church and to remind the people of the good news that had been delivered. And that's my intention this morning. Now, this good news, I just want to help you kind of understand what's being said here. This word gospel, that Paul uses, it was actually not a religious word. It wasn't a theological word. It wasn't a church word. It's a word you'll hear us say all the time, but ultimately its roots aren't in the church. It was actually a political word or or a military word. You see, when a king would lead an army off to battle and he would try to overthrow another land and he would fight to expand his territory, there would be a man who would travel with him who was kind of like a herald. And when the king would achieve victory on the battlefield, this herald would return back to the land where they came from and he would deliver the gospel. He would deliver the good news that the king had fought a battle on behalf of the people and that a victory had been won and that their life would be transformed and altered because of it. I mean, while the king was gone, imagine what the people thought. I mean, if the king loses, what's the new country gonna do to us? Are we gonna be slaves? Are they gonna take away our freedom? Are they going to take away our wives and our kids? What's going to happen to us? Are they going to kill us? But this herald would come back and he would deliver the gospel. The good news that the king had fought a battle. Victory has been won and your life has been forever transformed. And this morning, I simply want to declare for you that in the midst of tsunamis and unstable economic crises, in the middle of no jobs, in the middle of great jobs, in the middle of difficult marriages, in the middle of difficult kids, there is good news this morning. There is good news Now I want you to take a deep breath. Let it out. This good news, this gospel is not instruction about what you must do for God to make him happy with you. I know for many of you, you don't find yourselves in surroundings like this more often than maybe once or twice a year. And when you do, you usually find people coming in and and telling you what you need to do to appease this God who has done so much for you. You need to do so much for him now to make him happy with you. Listen, this gospel, this good news is not instruction about what you need to do for God. You need to just get that out of the way. This good news that Paul delivered and this good news that I want to deliver for you this morning is about what God has done on our behalf. Now this makes Christianity utterly different than every other philosophy and major religion in the world. Every other philosophy or religion in the world will set up some sort of system of behaviors that you must do, some system of rules that you must comply to, some system of ideas that you must assent to in order to please whatever deity it is that is driving you to. Every other philosophy and religion in the world is ultimately about what you must do to achieve whatever the ultimate end is. And this gospel, this good news that Paul delivered, that is, we'll see in just a minute, of first importance, is not advice about what you must do for God, but it is good news about what God has already done for you. John Stott, a great pastor and theologian from England, said this about this gospel, this good news. The gospel is not good advice to men. It's good news about Jesus. It's not an invitation for us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. It's not a demand, it's an offer. And it's an offer to receive what Jesus has done on our behalf. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul had said. This gospel 
that he has declared, this gospel, this good news that I am declaring is news that you must receive. And that is my prayer for every single person in here this morning. That as we read of the good news of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, that you would receive that this morning personally. That you would not only receive this as news in your mind, you would not only hear it as news to learn, but you would receive it personally. And as you would receive the good news, it would become that on which you would stand. That you would receive it and that you would stand on it. That it would become a sure foundation for you. That it would become a treasure for you. And that as you stood on that and treasured that good news, that you would hold fast to it. That you would persevere in it. The receiving of the good news of the gospel of what God has done for us through his son Jesus is not something that we do one time. It's not something that we do on an Easter Sunday. It's not something that we do when we feel emotionally manipulated by someone who has a microphone and captures you for about 45 minutes. The receipt of the good news of the gospel is something that we do every single day. So the Apostle Paul says, here's my intention and this is my prayer, that you would receive this good news, that you would stand in this good news, and that this good news for you would be something that you would hold fast to, that you'd begin to treasure this good news. And so I would say for those of you who are here this morning, whether this be the first time or the first time in a long time that you ever heard this good news, if you have not persevered in it, it's a good day for you. If you've heard this good news and you have not persevered, it's a good day. And if you've never heard this good news before, this is a good day. The Apostle Paul will go on to say in verse 3, For I delivered to you, talking to the church and now me talking to you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is going to be of first importance. Of all the things you can know, and researchers and Experts, however you determine this, experts are telling us that information is doubling at a rate of every two years. Every two years, the amount of information that exists right now is doubling. And experts are actually saying that given technologies that exist now and the technologies they anticipate coming into existence, we won't actually be able to track the rate at which information is expanding. So there's all sorts of things that you can know. There's all kinds of information out there that you can learn, you can know. And there's all kinds of information that you want to know, given your varied hobbies and interests. There's all kinds of things you can want to know, and there's all kinds of things you should know. But given those things, what can be known, what you would like to know, and what you should know, is there one thing that everyone, regardless of time, place, culture, location, ethnicity, economics, generation, whatever the barrier may be, is there one thing that must be known. And the Apostle Paul says there is. And it's of first importance. And this is what he said. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now before, and I'm just going to be very clear here, before that becomes good news for anyone in this place right now, you've got to understand the problem. I mean, for something to become good news, there's got to be bad news. Now, to understand the problem that this good news deals with, this gets down to the very nature of the human dilemma. I mean, in all places and in all times, you can go anywhere in the world you want. You can meet any man, woman from any tribe, tongue, and nation. And if you sit down with them, you begin to talk with them, at some point they will tell you that what they experience in their life and what they know to be true about themselves is not the way they wish it would be or not the way they think it should be. 
doesn't matter where you go. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, try to help you. If you were to take a little field trip tomorrow uh, to your local Barnes and Noble store, if you were to walk into the middle, walk around the store, take it all in, and then stand in the middle, if you were to try to guess what section of books took up the largest amount of real estate in your local Barnes and Noble, what do you think it would be? It's a self-help section. The largest section of real estate in Barnes and Noble is taken up by the self-help section. Because every single one of us knows at some point in our lives, at some place in our lives, things are not the way they are supposed to be. And there is no shortage of people on this earth willing to cash in on the human dilemma. No shortage. But here's what they can't agree on. What's really wrong? That's why there's so many books. What's really wrong and how do we actually fix it? Now the church has an answer to the problem. If you were to ask the church, what's the problem? What's at the core of the human dilemma? What's really underneath all of this? The church would say, it's a sin problem. And of that answer, I'll actually agree. That's a good answer. That's a solid answer. That's a Bible answer. But here's the problem with that. Here's what gets problematic in that answer. Ask a Christian what sin is. If sin's the problem with the human dilemma... If underneath what's really wrong is sin, what is it? What's sin? And if you were to ask a Christian in this country what sin is, most likely the answer you will get will be what? No takers this morning. Most likely you'll get a list of things that you should do and should not do. Behaviors that should not characterize your life. Things according to however they determine them from the Bible or from their own experience that you should not do. Thoughts you should not have. Attitudes and behaviors that should not be in your life. And here's the thing. That's partly true. That's not altogether wrong. But if the problem with humanity, listen, if the problem with humanity can be fixed by changing our behavior. If the problem with humanity deep down really is just a morality problem, if it's just immoral behaviors, then you don't need a savior. I mean, if the problem is behavior, you don't need a savior. You just need better education. You just need a system that will help you rise above the problem. You just need to find the right book that will tell you the right thing to do, the right way to fix whatever is ailing with you. That's why the section is so big in the store. But if the problem was really immoral behavior, you would not need a savior. You would just need better education. The Bible would say there's something much deeper than just morality. Your sin goes much deeper than your morality. Sin is much more than just a list of behaviors that we should avoid, that we should stay away from. You see, the story of the Bible would say that you and I, humanity, was created by God and hardwired by God for one essential thing. And that was worship. God created humanity and made them worshipers. It's hardwired into who we are. We were made by God to make much of greatness outside of ourselves. You see, we were made by God to experience the world that he made. And as we experience the world that he made, the things that we touched, the things that we ate, the relationships that we had, the joy that we found in those things was to drive upwards in our heart and point us upwards to the one who had created them and who had given them to us and who sustains us in those things. When we eat something that we love, it's supposed to drive us upwards to God and praise for being our creator and our sustainer. 
We were meant to worship God. We were hardwired to worship God. That's who he made us. We can't help but worship. It's just the nature of being human. But here's the problem. In a nutshell, you and I have taken God, who is big enough and sustaining enough and sufficient enough to be worshipped consistently and constantly. And we've taken our eyes and our hearts off of him and we've directed them to his things, to his stuff. We've taken God who is big enough and deep enough and sustaining enough to be worshipped consistently and constantly. And we've set him aside for his stuff. Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, will write a, church, write a letter to the church in Rome, and he'll say the essence of the problem is that we've begun to worship and serve the creature, he'll say, creation, rather than the creator. We've preferred God's things to God. We've preferred creation over the creator. And what happens? Because you can't help but worship. I mean, you can't turn it off. It's hardwired in you. In every decision you make, in every attitude you have, in every underlying motivation in your soul is driven by this hardwiring to worship. You are going to make much of something. You are going to trust something. You are going to look to something to provide for you what it is your soul deeply needs, an assurance and a joy and a hope and a satisfaction and an identity. And, and you're going to find that somewhere. You are going to worship and look to something to give that to you. And the problem is when we put that on something that was never created to provide it, we wind up empty. And when we begin to worship the creation rather than the creator, things that were never meant to sustain and provide what we were hardwired to want, things begin to go bad. When we begin to look to another person, for example, to give us that security, to give us that love, to give us that hope to be for us what we feel we need in our souls. And we look for this mythical one person who can give us that. And when we find that in this person, that person can't deliver, what do we do? We just bounce on to the next one. And we go from one relationship to the next relationship to the next relationship, looking for something the person can never actually provide. Looking for something that we were hardwired by God to find in him. And for others, it can be that mythical rung on the ladder that you've got to continually climb to achieve. You want to get to that next tax bracket, that next rung on the corporate ladder, that next piece of success. And here's the problem with that. When you actually get there, you want to stay there. And when that thing begins to get threatened because you put your hope in achieving this thing, and when you get there, then you'll be fulfilled, then you'll be secure, then you can trust, then you'll have what you need, and you get there, and someone tries to take it away from you, what begins to happen? You see, all those things we like to write down as behaviors that we like to define sin by, sin is these things, keep away from these things. Those things just come to life in our, in our everyday world, just come out of us as a response to the underlying problem of sin, which is ultimately misplaced worship. We've taken our hearts off of the one God who is big enough and deep enough to sustain and provide what it is he created us to want And we've put it on things that were never designed to give. They were never designed to give those things to us. 
The essence, the underlying nature of sin is not a list of behaviors. Those behaviors ultimately spring from the real problem, which is simply misplaced worship, which means sin is not primarily an immoral behavior. Sin is not ultimately a sense of morality. If it was, you could be educated out of it. If it was, there could be an ultimate system that you could obey that could get you out of it. Sin goes much deeper than that. It's an issue of our heart. It's an issue of our soul. It's an issue of misplaced worship. The portrait of the Bible would say, this is you and I. This is you and I this morning. This is what we're like. We don't want too much. And I want you to hear this because I don't know how many times you guys will be in a place like this for some of you who are new this morning. I want you to hear this. Our God created us to want. Really. He hardwired us to want, to desire, to seek that joy, to look for that which could give us the deepest and most lasting sense of joy and security and passion. He made us for that. That's not the problem. We don't want too much. We just want what we were created to want now from the wrong thing. Does that make sense? God is not withholding. He created us to want. He created us to see that in him, in him is the source and the provision of everything that we were so created to desire and seek. So the heart of sin ultimately is a sense of misplaced worship. And so what happens when we boil sin down to this list of immoral behaviors and this list of actions that we need to avoid is that we ultimately miss that our sin is an offense against God. See, when we make sin just simply a list of behaviors that we need to avoid, we're only looking at the horizontal consequences of our sin. I need to not do this because it hurt this person, or I need to not do this because it hurt me. That's usually more of our motivation. But our sin, the consequences of those immoral behaviors are always horizontal. But when we fail to see that our, our sin, ultimately at root, is misplaced worship, we miss the fact that ultimately our sin is offense against God. And that in desiring and in wanting and in pursuing creation over the Creator... We belittle God. We disregard God. And ultimately, we call him a liar. Because if he created us to want what only he can provide, and then we go and we try to find it somewhere else, what we're saying is we don't think that you can do it. You can't do it. And we disregard him, we belittle him, and we call him a liar question is, how is God going to deal with that? I mean, what is God's response to that going to be? I mean, how is an infinitely holy and righteous and good and just God going to respond to the disregard and belittlement of his character and of his nature and of his sufficiency by men and women like you and I? We miss this when we make sin about things we should and shouldn't do. How is God actually going to respond? And here's the answer you generally get. How is God going to respond to the disregard and the belittlement of his character by his creation? Well, the church answer is generally, he's got to forgive our sin, right? That's what you come to hear. That's what you come to expect. How is God going to respond? He needs to forgive his people. Well, again, 
right? Yes. But when we boil it down to that, and we make that the expectation and anticipation, what we do is, again, begin to belittle the massive problem that our sin creates, not just for us, but for God. I mean, we get so focused on ourselves that we miss the fact that our sin creates a massive problem for God. How is God, who is infinitely holy and just and righteous and good in all he is and all he does, going to respond to the belittlement and the disregard of his character by his creation? How is he going to forgive us and show mercy to us and compassion to us and grace to us without belittling and compromising his holiness and his justice? This is the problem that our creator had to figure out. And when we make sin about things we should do and shouldn't do, we miss the whole thing. How is God going to be merciful and loving in the face of his justice and his holiness? Now here's the good news, the gospel. At this point, you can imagine that herald coming back, running back through the back door back there, out of breath, been running for miles to deliver the good news. A battle has been fought. A victory has been won. Your lives are forever going to be altered. And here is what he said. In his infinite wisdom, God made a way to pour out his grace and his mercy and his love on you and I who day in and day out belittle his goodness and his character and his sufficiency without compromising his holiness and his justice and his righteousness. And Paul said he did it this way. He sent his son Jesus to live on this earth as a physical man, the life that you and I were created by God to live. Day in and day out, Jesus lived the life that you and I were created to live, a life of worship before God, of trust in God, of satisfaction in God, while tempted in every way as you and I are to be focused on creation, to turn our hope and our worship on creation and off of the creator. Jesus lived, lived in our place, the life that we were created to live. And then he died. He suffered And he died to pay the price for the life that we've chosen to live instead. The life of misplaced worship. The life of the belittlement of God. The disregard of God. Jesus laid his life down on a cross and died to pay the price for our life, for our sin. Though he knew no sin, he paid the price for our sin. He was beaten beyond recognition. The scriptures foretold of it, Paul said. He would be beaten so bad that your eyes wouldn't even recognize him. And after he took a beating that most men died from, he was nailed to a cross with spikes that were six to seven inches long. And he was lifted up. And on that cross, not only did he suffer at the hands of men, God poured out his righteous and holy wrath for our sin on his son Jesus in our place. God did not look over our sin. He did not look over our belittlement of his character. His justice was served and he poured it out physically on his son, Jesus, who endured and exhausted the wrath of God in our place. And then he died. He physically died for our sin. 
as the Bible would say, that the wages of sin, of that misplaced worship, or that belittlement of God who is all holy and eternal, is death. And Jesus suffered that death in our place for our sin. He really did die. And they took his body off of a cross and prepared it for burial. They covered him in spices and oils and wrapped him in linen. Researchers say it was probably 75 pounds of linen. So if you think he did not die on the cross, and if you think the spear that was thrust into his side that punctured his heart didn't do it, he certainly would have suffocated. And his body was prepared for burial and it was put in a tomb, a tomb that was cut out of the side of a mountain. And just to make sure that nobody messed with it, a stone was rolled over the face of that tomb. And be doubly sure that nobody could mess with the body of Jesus, a soldier was placed at the entrance to the tomb right next to the stone. Jesus Christ lived the life we were created to live and died to pay the price for the life that we lived instead. He really did die. He really was buried in accordance with the scriptures. All of this, Paul said, God had foretold through his prophets to his people how he would achieve this victory on their behalf without compromising anything about who he was. And here's the thing that you've got to get this Easter morning. As good as that sounds and as great as that sounds, Jesus did what we couldn't do and he died and he suffered in our place. He died the death that we were due to die for our sin. If his body decomposes, it may be thousands of years later, is found in some cave over in Israel, all of this would be useless. All of this would be useless. It all means nothing if his body is still in that tomb. It it may be great. It may have been a noble gesture. It may have been a great idea. He may very well have done it to pay the price for our sins. He may very well have died in our place for our sins. But how can we actually know that because of his death in our place for our sins, we can be forgiven by God for our misplaced worship, for our disregard and belittling of God? How can we actually know and be assured that God has forgiven us? I mean, how can we actually know that Jesus' sacrifice in our place achieved for us a reconciliation with God so much so that God can now look at us, look at you and I, and not see us in our sin, but see us in his son instead? How can we be sure that God calls us his sons and daughters, that we've actually been adopted into his family? That we're not just better versions of our old selves, that God didn't just wipe our hearts kind of shiny and clean, but they stayed the same, but instead are absolutely new. How can we be sure of all these things we so hold fast to? Now, I got an email this morning from a friend just to encourage me this morning before we had services to preach, and it said this. It said, fix your eyes on the cross and the death of Jesus, not as the place to show how worthy you are, but to show the weight of sin, Not as the place where Jesus simply felt your pain, but where he bore your penalty. Not as the place where God overturned divine justice, but where God in mercy fulfilled his justice. Not as the place where love died, but where love reigned supreme. Pay careful attention to the cross. It's there that we see such a great salvation, delivering us from such a great wrath, revealing to us a great Savior who was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that by his stripes we might be healed. Fantastic! But it means nothing if his body is still in the grave. 
It means nothing. There is no assurance. That's why the last line of what Paul said and what we celebrate this Easter Sunday is so important. Jesus did rise from the dead on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He literally took that linen off. He literally stood up in that tomb. He literally rolled away that stone and he literally walked out of that tomb in triumphant victory over Satan's sin and death. He really did rise. He really is alive and all of our faith and all of our hope and the entirety of Christianity hinges and hangs on this significant issue of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Without his resurrection, we have nothing. Paul will go on to say in chapter 15, verses 14 and 17, that if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is in vain. It's empty. It's hollow. It has no teeth to it. It has nothing to hold on to. It's like mist. You grab it and it goes away. It's in vain. And if our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. What I'm telling you and what I'm declaring to you is hollow as well. So your hope in it is pointless. Your faith is in vain. He'll go on to say in a couple of verses that if we believe in this and if Jesus hasn't really risen from the dead, we're the most to be pitied because at least all the other religions and philosophies have some type of system by which they believe that they can do the right things to earn whatever it is they're after. We're the ones that actually believe that someone's done it on our behalf. And if it didn't really happen, we're the most to be pitied because we're looking for someone else to do something that we should be after. And if our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain, Paul goes on to say that if he has not been raised, our faith is worthless and we're still in our sins. We're still in our sins. If Jesus had not come out of that tomb alive, if Jesus had not resurrected from the dead, what that means is that his sacrifice in our place for our sins, as noble as it may have been, wasn't enough. It means that God looked at his sacrifice and said, "Mm, thank you, not enough. And if his sacrifice wasn't enough, it means we're still in our sins. And all that we can hope for, all that we can anticipate, all that we can look forward to is that which our sin brings us, which is condemnation and judgment before a holy God and ultimately eternity apart from him. That would be the only hope that we have. One of my heroes, John Piper, he, he said this about the resurrection. He said, the resurrection is the proof of how perfect and all sufficient Jesus' sacrifice was. You see, if God does not give the just reward, it's because the sacrifice is defective and our faith is empty then and we're still stuck in our sin. But the message of Easter The message of the day that our culture gives us on this calendar for everybody to recognize and everybody to celebrate and everybody to hear, that which Paul delivered as first importance is that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Our faith is not in vain. Our faith is not futile. Our hope is not dashed. God accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our place as sufficient. And he vindicated that. He demonstrated that by raising him from the dead. This is so important. Of all things we must know, we must know this and be able to answer the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because on that, everything swings. 
And so from there, the Apostle Paul gives a series of evidences of Jesus' resurrection because it's so important. And what he goes on to say is that it wasn't a private event. It didn't happen off in the boondocks in the woods somewhere. Jesus resurrected from the dead in front of people, and people experienced it. He said in verse 5 that after he resurrected from the dead, he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter. Peter is the one who had been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, the one who was so impetuous, the one always jumping the gun, and the one who denied Jesus three times before he was crucified, the one who fled in fear when Jesus was nailed to the cross and lifted up. He ran away crying in fear for what might happen. Paul says Jesus appeared to this Peter. And this Peter goes on from that place of fear and that desertion of the man Jesus Christ to write two books of the Bible to preach the most stirring and stunning messages of the resurrection that we have recorded in the Bible. And in the face of his own death, being faced with his own death for having believed in the person and work of Jesus, given the option to recant of what he believed. In the face of dying, he did not recant and instead said, crucify me upside down because I don't deserve to be crucified the way he was. What changes a man like that? He saw the resurrected Jesus. And Paul said he went on from Peter to see the disciples, men like Thomas. Remember Thomas? Men who had walked with Jesus, had followed Jesus, had experienced the miracles and the teaching of Jesus. And after Jesus died, had huddled up with the disciples in prayer and in fear, what's going to happen? Are the authorities going to come get us and kill us? And Jesus just shows up in the room. No doors needed, just shows up. Thomas said, I just, I need to touch him. I believe it when I see it. I, I need to touch his hands and touch his side. Probably not dissimilar from a lot of you. And Jesus appears. And in the face of the resurrected Jesus, Scripture records nothing of what Thomas said other than the fact that he fell down on his face and cried out, my Lord, my God. What does it for a man like that? The resurrected Jesus. Paul said he goes on to appear to some 500 people at one time. Now, it's hard enough to get 500 people in one place at one time. There were probably just over 500 people here this morning between our two services, and we couldn't even do it all in one place. But imagine back then, and everybody had to come into those areas. You have 500 people. Jesus appears to all of them. And history records that they all walk away agreeing, having experienced the resurrected Jesus. It's next to impossible to get 500 people to agree on anything. And this they agree on. And Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them. He's risen from the dead. He appeared to these people. They're still here. Go ask them. It says that after that, he appeared to James. Who's James? It's his brother. It's his brother. And scripture records that while Jesus was on earth performing his, his ministry of teaching and, and performing miracles in the face of, uh, of people that his own family didn't believe that he was the son of God. I mean, forget how he was born in the story of that. His own brothers didn't believe that he really was the Messiah. Yet we know that his brothers James and Jude go on to lead the church in Jerusalem, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, to both write letters that were recorded for us in Scripture, both to have their throats cut for having believed in the person and work of Jesus, their brother. What causes that brother, James or Jude, to go from, my brother's a son of God? To dying for believing that truth. They experienced the resurrected Jesus. And Paul thought that lest you could write them off because they were family and friends, he gets to verse 8. 
Last of all, he says, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was no friend of Jesus. In fact, as we've learned, as we've studied the book of Acts, he was an enemy of Jesus. He made it his point and his mission to persecute and kill those that he could get his hands on who, procla- who professed to be followers of Jesus. He, he said, was the last, the least of all, the least worthy for this Jesus to appear to. But what do we know happened? On his way to apprehend followers of Christ, the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul. And he went from being the enemy of Jesus and the enemy of the church to arguably the greatest theologian, preacher, church planter in the history of the church, ultimately losing his life for his faith in the resurrected Jesus. What changes men and women like this? They had come face to face with the reality that Jesus was not in that tomb. It was empty. And all of our faith and all of our hope hinges on the reality of that. So Paul says, Jesus has been raised. You can go check it out for yourself. And he says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I love this, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. And the good news on this Easter Sunday morning, the heart of the good news this Easter Sunday morning is the good news of God's grace. It's the good news of God's grace. Left to ourselves, you and I deserve nothing but separation from God and condemnation from God and the righteous judgment of God for our sin and the wrath of God poured out for our belittlement of him. We deserve his wrath and his judgment. But instead, he poured that out on his son in our place and God then gives us his grace. Instead of wrath, we get grace. And because of Jesus living in our place, dying in our place, and God vindicating him in our place and raising him from the dead, those who place their hope and their faith in Jesus, those who, as Paul said, receive the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done are forgiven. The grace of God gets poured out on your life and your sins are forgiven, not just the things you do, but all the ways that you belittle God. All of that misplaced worship, past, present, and future, it gets forgiven. The Bible said it gets washed away as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered before by God. That when he looks at you, he doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you in his son who lived the life you were supposed to live in your place. And if that wasn't good enough, as the grace of God gets poured out onto his people, we're not just forgiven, we begin to learn that we've actually been adopted into God's family. It'd be one thing for him to forgive us and let us go, and we should celebrate that. I mean, that would be great enough. But he doesn't stop there. He actually brings us into his family. And as we understand that we are actually sons and daughters of God through his grace because of his son, we begin to see our identity and understanding of who we are is absolutely changed He goes from being someone we fear being judged by to being our dad who loves us and cares for us. And if that wasn't enough, as his grace is poured out, 
the very spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead takes up residence in our hearts and begins to will and to work and to transform us into the image of Jesus himself. The day in and day out, we are progressively being changed by the very spirit and power of God in us. This is the grace of God poured out onto our lives because of Jesus. And none of us, listen to me, none of us in here have any right to demand any of that from God. None of us in and of ourselves has the right for God to to demand from God to pour out his grace and his mercy on us. But he does. By his grace and because of his love and because of his wisdom that made a way to do this without compromising his holiness and his righteousness, God gives and extends that offer freely to everyone in here. And it's all by grace. That's God's love in action, his kindness in action, his mercy in action. It's his kindness at work even right now. And Paul says, I am what I am because of God's grace. It's all God's grace. It's all his grace. And grace is at the heart of all that we believe. It's at the heart of all that we celebrate. Grace is the sum total of what we're about. Around here we talk much of grace being that, we mu- that the thing that we must, must receive. This very message that Paul says we must receive is the message of his grace. It's his grace that we must stand on. It's his grace that we must, much, must hold fast to. And it's his grace, it's his grace that we get to enjoy. We get to enjoy and be satisfied by. And so today I've got to ask, have you received this good news? Paul said this good news has to be received. It can't just be heard It actually has to be received. Have you ever received this good news? And if you haven't, why not? And will you? It's really that simple. We must receive it. We must stand on it. We must treasure it. We must cling fast to it if it's ever going to be of any practical value for us. So this morning, we we invite you to receive Jesus' great invitation of grace and salvation and forgiveness and mercy. If you're not a Christian here this morning, listen to me. I mean, you take anything away this morning, take this. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you need Jesus. What you need is Jesus. You don't need rules. You don't need some system of redemption. You don't need some book of ideas. You don't need morality. You don't need religion. What you need is Jesus, the living Jesus. And this morning, you can pray to him. You can talk to him. You can ask him to forgive your sins, to be your God. And I promise you he will. I promise you he will. You know why? Because he's alive. Because he's alive. He will forgive you. And if that's not good enough, know this. There is nothing that you have ever done. Nothing that you have ever thought. Nothing that you have ever wanted to do that could keep him from forgiving you. I mean, seriously, if he could pour out his grace through his son Jesus on the apostle Paul, the persecutor of the church, the man who killed people for following Jesus, 
The one who made it his person, purpose to eradicate this church. If God can not only pour his grace out on him and forgive him, but then use him to communicate this good news, to establish his church, to preach the gospel. There's nothing that you have done that could ever keep you from that same forgiveness. And so this morning I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to receive that good news. If not for the first time, maybe the first time in a very long time. And my prayer is that that good news that you receive, you'll begin to stand in. And as you stand in it, you'll cling to it. And as you cling to it, you'll learn what it means to really enjoy it. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you this morning for being honest. Being honest with us about our, our need, about our situation, about our circumstance. And I confess first and foremost, Lord, that I am a sinner and that we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of worshiping you and regarding you for who you are. And we find ourselves, because of our sin, separated from you and in need of you reconciling yourself to us. So Jesus, we we thank you this morning for humbly coming to this earth as a human to identify with us and to live the life that we were created to live. We thank you for resisting sin and living without sin. And we thank you for going to the cross and for substituting yourself in our place and dying for our sins. And we thank you, we thank you today, this day of resurrection, that the tomb is empty, that you are alive that sin has been forgiven, that death has been defeated, that our relationship has been restored, that grace has been poured out, that new life has been given. And we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus. And we worship you. And we ask the Holy Spirit, we ask you to convict us of our sin, to compel us this morning to receive your grace and to fill us so that we might love you with transformed hearts. We might sing to you this morning with transformed mouths, and we might leave here this morning empowered by your grace to live transformed lives. We ask this for your glory and ultimately our joy. In Jesus' great name, amen. Amen. If you are new with us this morning, we have